Okay, let's get into the Word of God today. This message is a very important message. In fact, it's so important that I honestly, and I'm not trying to sound humble, I'm not worthy to bring it. So there's a scripture in 1 John, uh, the epistle of John, that talks about um, uh, that, that you, 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 you don't just have a need of humans to teach you, but the spirit within you. It's called unction is the King James word. The spirit within you. So I want to appeal to you to, um, to listen to the teacher within you today, the spirit within you, to make this real to you, what I'm going to try to say. And I think, it, I think it's a really, I think it's an important word for us and a foundational word for, for, or a, a message for us today. So I want to ask you to do that and to um, ask God to show you. Uh, one of the things we do, if you're new here, at the end of the service, we have prayer partners who come and stand at the front and they pray for any need that you have. We, we believe there's a do- scriptural doctrine of the laying on of hands that there's something about the human connection that God works through. And, and those of you who have been around church a long time, you, you know about that. You know that sometimes to have the breakthrough prayer you need, you need somebody to pray for you. Someone to lay a hand on your shoulder. Someone they didn't have to physically lay a hand on you, but pray, pray with you. So that's what we do. So if you're here today, you have any kind of need, come forward. And it's very important you come forward with your needs because there are some people in the room who need to make a very serious commitment. And so I'm going to ask for a very serious commitment related to the message today. And so, especially if they've never made that commitment before, uh, they're going to, it's going to be easier for them to come forward for prayer if you will come forward with your needs. And these prayer partners are very excited about meeting you. We communicate all during the week. We have a text message thread that we all talk about, and we share your needs throughout the week, and they pray. So they come to church. They're, they're excited about ministering to you. So when they come forward today, you come forward and receive prayer. And especially some of you are going, it may be just be two or three. You, you need to make a commitment related to this sermon today. And there's nothing like, you know, in the Bible, they would, they, in the Bible when they would make commitments, they would make them with witnesses. If they, if they didn't have human witnesses, and sometimes when they did, they would set up a big old rock. And they would say, every time you see that rock, that rock witnessed our commitment. So that's why it's important. So... Uh, take that and use it as you can, okay? This is a part of a series called Reconstructing Your Faith. And today I'm going to call this message Bedrock. There's probably never been a more acceptable time to investigate everything you've ever believed about everything, including your faith. Tis the season to deconstruct. I'm not saying it's wise to abandon your faith or abandon long-held historic values, biblical and otherwise. I'm just saying you likely won't pay a social price as you might have in the past for deconstructing your faith and all kinds of other beliefs. But God has a plan, and I believe this is God's plan. I believe it's God's time for many of you to reconstruct your faith. And that's what I want to try to persuade you to do today. I'm convinced that it's the right choice, not to deconstruct your faith, but to reconstruct it. I'm I'm convinced of that. One sentence from Hebrews 11.6 says, For he who comes to God must believe that he is, 
I call this bedrock. God is. I call that bedrock. The word bedrock is a biblical word, by the way, and new tra- later translations use it. I'm going to read one to you in a moment. Bedrock means the solid, unweathered rock that forms the foundation of our base of the earth's crust. It is the dense, compacted rock layer underlying soil, sediment, and loose material. Bedrock principles, you probably heard that phrase, refer to some fundamental, unshakable, essential beliefs or values that serve as your foundation. Just like bedrock forms the solid base of the earth's crust, these principles provide stability and direction for all of your decisions and all of your behaviors. Before technology created alternatives, the only way to stabilize a massive structure was to dig down deep and connect it to that bedrock that I just talked about. Uh, Listen to the words of Psalmist David in Psalm 62, one of my favorite passages for many years. David said, I waited quietly before God, for my victory comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I will never be shaken. Now, I want to make this qualification this morning so I don't have to digress later and take a rabbit trail. It's important that you know that I firmly believe that God manifests His goodness in the physical realm, the social realm, the financial realm, the material realm. That I believe John, John 10 where Jesus said He would give us abundant life. I believe it includes all kinds of human flourishing. I really believe that. Jesus said, give and it will be given you in one place. Your, your gift will return to you in full, full measure, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured out into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. At points this morning, it may sound like I'm advocating against praying for financial health, marital harmony, a thriving family, physical health, civil liberty, and cultural change. I am not. I'm only going to try to convince you that answered prayer is not bedrock. Think about that for a second. I'm only trying to convince you that answered prayer is not bedrock. Now, you're sharp. You're from New England, so you're wicked smart. So you probably said, hey, Phil, the rest of that passage of Hebrews 11, 6 is God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What do you mean prayer, answered prayer, is not bedrock? Yes, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I agree. I get it. But like a good parent... God gets to decide when, where, and how you get your reward. Larry Lee used to say, God will bless you with money or that which money cannot buy. And some of you go, I just show me the money. (laughs) God will not use his power. Now remember, bedrock is God is. God will not use his power to defeat his purpose. I said, God will not use his power to defeat his purpose. Now, many scholars are certain, and this this is relevant to the point and relevant to the rest of the message. Many scholars are certain that Psalm 62 was composed during the time of Absalom's rebellion against David, his father. 
Absalom, one of David's son, who stole the kingdom from his father and forced him to flee from his own son as a fugitive. So, so he, he wrote those words, Psalm 62, affirming that he had hit bedrock in his philosophy of life. And that what guided his life was not what was happening in his family, was not what was happening in his kingdom, was not what was happening to him physically, but what was guiding his life was something far deeper. He had dug down to the reality of the sovereignty of God and God himself. Let me tell you a cautionary tale of two bridges. The first bridge is a bridge... That was completed in 18, uh, I think it was 1871. And it was a bridge that connected Dundee and Wormit, Scotland. It was called the Tay River Bridge. And that's where the Tay River goes into the North Sea. It was engineered by a very famous engineer at that time called Thomas Balsh, and it was a marvel of engineering. Lattice girders and sturdy piers, and it was a beautiful piece of work, supported by these enormous iron cylinders. But on a fateful night, December 28, 1879, a train was going across that bridge with 75 people on board, and it collapsed. All 75 people drowned or died in the icy waters of the Tay River. What they discovered is they thought they had dug down and hit bedrock, but they hadn't. They discovered they had not secured that bridge to anything stable. Let me tell you about another bridge that you're more that you are you probably never heard of the Tay River Bridge because I hadn't until I looked it up. But you, there's a bridge I know you have heard. It's called the Brooklyn Bridge. The Brooklyn Bridge was, was finished just three or four years after the Tay River Bridge was, was, was finished, but there's something different about the Brooklyn Bridge. The Brooklyn Bridge was, was designed by a guy named J, John Roebling, and he died. His son Washington took over. His son Washington got extremely sick from compression sickness, and I'll explain in a second why he got sick from compression sickness, because they had to do with discovering bedrock. And, and in fact, uh, John Roebling's wife took over and finished the project. The Tay River Bridge project took seven years. The Brooklyn Bridge took 14. Because they were determined to hit bedrock. And the water in the East River was, the bedrock underneath the East River was very, very deep, and they could not dig down to it normal means, so they developed these huge, massive cylinders, and they pumped them full of compressed air, and men would get down in those, those cylinders in that compressed air, and they would dig. That's why John Roebling got depression, decompression sickness. It's just like if you dive deep into the ocean. But they took the time, and they hit bedrock, Eventually, there was an accident and a bunch of guys died in one of those uh, columns, but they kept working. They kept working because they weren't about to build a bridge without hitting bedrock. And guess what? The Brooklyn Bridge is still there. Jesus said it this way 
Anyone who listens to my teachings and follows is wise. Like a person who builds a house on the raw, solid rock, though the rains come in its torrents and its floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. That's the New Living Translation. Thank God I got rescued by a translation that used the word I wanted to use. (laughs) I had to search a lot of translations to find one that used the word bedrock. And I was so delighted. I said, that's confirmation of the Holy Spirit that uh, someone translated it bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on the sand. Notice the centrality of Jesus. It's, it's, it's not an examination of his, of his teaching. It's, it's not an academic analysis of what he taught. It's because he said it, that it was powerful. Because he was the rock. The Bible says in another place, that rock was Christ. By the way, if you talk about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, you're, all, you're talking about God. So the words, in some sense, while I believe in the Trinity, the words are, in some sense, interchangeable. So, the person, uh, I'm not sure where I I quit reading there. It won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teachings and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods came and the winds beat against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. So, we cannot separate foundations and bedrock from the idea of storms and adversity. Adversity, which comes to every life, it comes to every culture, it comes to every society, it comes to every one of our lives. Adversity is God's lie detector. The rains came down, the storms rose, both houses looked good. Architecture was Perhaps excellent, perhaps not. I don't know. But let's pretend it was excellent. It was beautiful architecture. Both houses may have been beautiful. The rain came, the storm rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. But the storm revealed that one was grounded and one was not. The storm revealed that one house had dug down to bedrock, the other house had not. Adversity reveals whether or not I have dug down to the bedrock of God is, rather than God, what have you done for me lately? I like this meme. Sometimes God lets you hit rock bottom so you realize that he's the rock at the bottom. Stress, problems, pandemics, culture shifts. Yeah, you can give the, whoever wrote that meme, give them a hand. Stress, problems, pandemics, culture shifts are what lead us away from God, we think. They, but not really. They actually reveal whether our, our foundation was God in the first place. If you think it's stress, problems, and culture shifts that led, that's led in some, in some places, in some instances, according to the people who keep statistics, that's leading people, the American church, away from God, you're naive. Stress, problems, and culture shifts merely reveal whether, we're, whether we had already left God or we never found Him. If you don't believe me, exhibit A is a man named Solomon. Solomon is the man who had it all. If you ever want to know the man who had it all, Solomon's net worth was $2 trillion in today's money. 
Solomon was ten times richer than Elon Musk. Solomon lived in a 15,000 square feet house with 51 foot ceilings. He had built the temple of God. He had a personal talking relationship with God. He was loved all over the world. And to put it in perspective, Aaron Rodgers just bought a $10 million house. Aaron Rodgers, you know, the quarterback we hate. At least we get to beat, we're going to get to beat him this year. So Aaron Rodgers now plays the hated New York Jets. And he just bought a $10 million house that's 4,000 square feet. So, uh, uh, like, like that would have been one of Solomon's servant quarters. That's how rich he was. A preacher, uh, a preacher that you might call a prosperity preacher. I, I, I don't want to be a poverty preacher. I was thinking about the other day, you know, I criticized prosperity, <laughs> prosperity preachers. You know, what am I, a poverty preacher? Uh, yeah, maybe there's, maybe there's something in the middle, right? But one of those, one of those prosperity preachers said a, a while back, he lives in an 8,000 square feet house, and he said, people will drive by my house and know there's a God. <laughs> Not. But what does it say about Solomon in... 1 Kings chapter 11. He's just, he's just built his house. He's just built the t- temple. It says, But Solomon loved foreign women, and they turned his heart away from God. So, never, never mind. It, it, it's a fact that church attendance has declined since the pandemic, but the pandemic just revealed that those people who dropped out weren't that interested in being in church in the first place. For some of us, the storm just revealed our lack of grounding. You know, we used to sing, Lord, our hearts are prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You know, my grandson and I were driving along the other day, and we're talking about the world, and things are going on in the world. And it, I, I said, I said Braden, Braden, go, you know, look on your phone and read Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, where God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which is a very confusing passage. I don't totally understand it completely. But I know one thing, that Israel was too comfortable in Egypt. Israel was too comfortable in Egypt. So God allowed, caused, however your theology will work on that one. It took pressure from Pharaoh to cause them to realize that they had lost their foundation because they weren't interested in going to the promised land because they were now at home in Egypt. So God sometimes has to get our attention. They got back to bedrock and they had a revival in the wilderness led by Miriam on a tambourine on the way to the promised land. I'm not encouraging you to bring your tambourine. (laughs) But if it'll bring revival, let's do it. I appreciated an email I got this week from, I, I don't know, Sylvia, Sylvia, are you here? Sylvia George? Sylvia, uh, oh, there you are. I, I, I did try to reach out to you to see if you'd let me read it, and I couldn't, you, you didn't get back to me, so I'm, I'm, is it okay if I read it? Well, can I read it? Oh, that's good, because it's a huge part of my sermon. <laughs> 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 I, you know, I, 
I built my whole sermon around it. So She said, uh, I'm writing to tell you, Pastor Phil, I'm writing to tell you, and, and this is so self-serving. I'm so sorry. It, it, it just comes. I, I, it's the only positive email I got about my sermon. So last week. So I, I hope it doesn't sound too, too self-serving that I read it. Because I, I want you to get the point. The point is not that I preached an incredibly great sermon last week. That's not the point. Pastor Phil, I'm writing to tell you how right on the sermon was Sunday. As I sat there, I thought, he's preaching my testimony in the last few weeks. The time has been hard, and I experienced some of what you were preaching. God gave me a changed and peaceful heart as my prayers gradually changed from heal my eyes. She, she could not see out of one eye for, for uh, several days. For, uh, I, my prayer changed from heal my eye to I need to see God better. I had... I told him whatever plan he had for my eye, I would accept it. But there was no physical sight. I wanted his spiritual sight. But if there was no physical sight, I wanted his spiritual sight to see and understand his word better, to have the eyes of my heart open so I could teach with his anointing and power. There is more, but I do have God's peace, and my fearful heart was stilled in my spiritual journey. God has changed me in different ways, but what he did in my heart this time was far more than I could ever ask or think or believe. And she goes on to say, I wrote a, I wrote a weekly wisdom piece about uh, God is four days late, but just on time. And I know all of you read that. <laughs> Not. <laughs> but uh, your weekly wisdom was encouraging, too. It's certainly true that God works on a different timetable than we do. And blessings on you. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you so much. Give Sylvia a hand. Yes. Adversity reveals whether we're really following Jesus. Think of this. The New Living Translation uses the word collapse. Other, other versions, the word fell. The house fell. Think about Jesus describing that second house collapsing and falling. What did that mean? The person filed bankruptcy? No. That's not what it meant. Collapse in Matthew 7, 27 meant only one thing. And that is they stopped trusting God. They stopped following Jesus. Jesus defines failure as not following him. Jesus prepared his disciples. In fact, he prepared them that they would suffer and be rejected. And he, and he told them, you, you know, you're going to lose everything because you love me. It's, and many of you are going to be killed. So collapsing wasn't a material or physically falling apart. Collapsing was when the foundation, the spiritual foundation of your life is not there. And your relationship with God is lost. Your relationship with God was lost. That Jesus defined that as failure. And that is collapsing. You didn't fail just because you died. Obviously, Jesus said, some of you are going to die because, you know, Jesus knew he was the only essential thing in life. Jesus knew if you suffered or rejected or died because you were following him, you didn't fail. See, see we, 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 have to, we have to change this especially Western idea of what success is. According to Jesus, success is following him. Success is having him. Jesus is the treasure in the field that the man sold everything he had to have the field so he could have the treasure in the field. And Jesus is the treasure in the field. 
Jesus says of the wise person's house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. Because. Think of that word because. Is Jesus your because? Hmm? Is Jesus my because? Andrew Clavin, and by the way, I know all the stuff about churches declining and all the statistics and all that stuff. And I, and I know some churches you know, that, that are declining and, and you know, we've seen ups and downs in our own attendance and all that stuff. But uh, you need to know, you need to know there's some very, very prominent people coming to Jesus these days. Very, very wicked, smart people coming to Jesus and, and, and becoming born-again Christians. And maybe I'll, maybe I'll collect all those names and give them to you. I don't have them off the top of my head, but, but I know some. I just can't remember their names or celebrity types and all that that are coming to Christ these days. But Andrew Clavin is one of those, a very, a very, very prominent uh, fiction writer, movie script writer, who has come to faith in Christ over the last few years. And uh, he, <clears throat> he was... Um, trying to figure out the philosophy of Jesus. He's studying the Gospels, and he's talking to his son. And his son asked him this question. Dad, maybe the problem is that you are trying to understand the philosophy instead of trying to get to know a man. He said, I recognize this on the instant as the single smartest thing anyone had ever said to me. Adversity has a way of revealing what is essential and what we can change or discard. See, I, I don't like many things about our times that we're living in. I, I, none of us in our right minds would welcome adversity and ask for it and plan for it. But when it comes, it's kind of like, you know, I think moving. I've moved a lot of times in my life. I, 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 it's going to make me sound unstable. Sherry and I sound un, un, unstable, which perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps it's a, a moment of a catharsis for me, you know. I, I remember thinking one day, we moved here in 1988, and I don't remember at what point it was probably 2000. I, I counted, we moved 14 times. I mean, that's what happens when you don't pay your rent. <laughs> but uh, you know what happens when you move? You, you get rid of stuff. <laughs> this last time we moved, we filled two 30-yard dumpsters. Because we lived in a four-bedroom house with a big attic, a full basement, and an oversized garage. You know, all that prosperity gives you the luxury of collecting a lot of junk that you don't need. And I, I know that the house I live in, you drive by it, it looks like a big house, but it's really not as big as the, the basement's not finished. I mean, it's not finished. It's, it's 1810 not finished. <laughs> so we, and, and I, 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 just, I just love my wife for this, that, that, and for many things, but that 
she, you know, she's, she, she's not a pack rat. Boy, she, she will, if in doubt, throw it out. And that's the, way I, I, that's the way I try to live too. But boy, it's so easy not to live that way. It's so easy just... You know what we found? We found out we, we found out we had a lot of coffee pots. <laughs> we, found, we found out we had gone and bought things that we already had. You, you ever do that? You go buy stuff, and then you, and you, you know, it's a, it's a first world problem, believe me. I think it's moving time in the body of Christ. It's time that we, we need to rent a 30-yard dumpster. And decide what is essential. It's, it's moving time for some of your lives. Some of you need to make a move toward God. And so you need to get rid of stuff that's not essential. You know about Job's comforters, right? They believe suffering was a result of his wrongdoing, that he should admit his guilt. Boy, don't you love it when friends like that show up. When you're suffering in your worst low point in life. That's because they had a, they had a deal-making view with God. Uh, some people call it a transaction, transactional view of God, like some of us do. A transaction involves an exchange of or interaction between two or more parties, often involving goods, services, money, and information. I'll give you this, you give me this. Uh, they had a transactional relationship with God, Job's friends. If you do the right thing, good things will happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. That's how God works. Now, that's not faith in God. That's faith in faith. And some people think they have faith in God, and all they have is faith in faith. And they will quickly move their faith to something else if God's not working out. And what does it mean, God's not working out? What does it mean, this, this is not working? If God is, He is. So it's working. He's being God. I, 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 I'm amused at people who read, you know, I know there's some really tough verses in the Old Testament that need a lot of unpacking. I'm reading a book now called God is Not a Moral Monster, which tries to explain all the verses in the Old Testament where, where, where God appears violent, you know, and there's viol- the violence of God. And, 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 and I'm, I'd, I'm convinced God is not a violent God. I'm convinced he's compassionate, loving, caring, sent his son to die for my sins. And I'm, and I'm also don't believe that the cross was cosmic child abuse. I don't believe God was pouring his wrath out on his son. Now, I just, I just messed with someone's theology, I realize. But talk to me later. I'll explain why I said that. But, um, but, I, but I am amused when people uh, say there is no God because the God that they felt the Bible described, they don't like him. Wait a minute. If you don't like me, I, I know, uh, it, 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 you, and some of you probably don't like me, that's fine, but does that make me non-existent? <laughs> you, you know, some of you are, are the product of divorce here today, and, 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 and it would be nice, wouldn't it, if they didn't exist, that farmer partner that you're, that you're sharing kids with. I know some situations where people would be, but, but they exist. So the fact that you have found something out about God that you would like to change doesn't mean you can, you can disappear him. The rock bottom 
um, idea of my faith is that God is God. Adversity also purifies our motives. It wasn't all that long ago that someone sitting in their kitchen having their morning coffee on Sunday would look out the window and see their next-door neighbor, husband and wife, or even a single parent, making their pilgrimage to the house of worship on Sunday morning. They would think, you know, that's really nice. I, I really think it would be good if we went to church. Now, that was a while back that someone would think that. I mean, I mean, this is why, uh, uh, see, see, the McCutcheons solved this problem because we all come in a different car. If, the, if there are eight McCutcheons and Moraises and Coys with driver's license, we bring eight cars. <laughs> but in the old days, families would march out of their house on Sunday morning, Bibles in hand, and they would get in the car and get in the station wagon and go to church. And the neighbors would look out and think, that's really nice that they're going to church. But this morning, let's replay that same scenario, and the chances are slim to none that a neighbor watching you is thinking anything like that. In fact, in fact, they're probably thinking, oh my, as they look out the kitchen window, Oh my, look at that regressive, oppressive, patriarchal relic of the past. What cult do they belong to? <laughs> Church membership's no longer a requirement for being elected to public office as it was in, in Collin County where I grew up. You could forget getting elected. You couldn't be elected to dog catcher if you didn't, weren't a member of a church. So, why am I smiling? Because this is really good news. If you're here, it's because you want to be here. It, if you're going to do this, it's because you actually believe. There's no social pressure on you believing in God or saying you believe in God or saying you believe in Jesus are carrying a Bible around. There's no social pressure. The only reason you should do it is because you're convinced it's true. And what kind of revival can we have with that kind of circumstance? Amen? Amen? I'm really excited about being a real Christian. <laughs> we used to sing this song. We should sing it again. Maybe the worship team can, you know, re-engineer re, uh, um, uh, it. That's not, that's not the musical word. Arrangement. Come up with an arrangement. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ the Lord. She is his new creation by water and by word and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Jesus wasn't a philosopher, but every philosophy not rooted in his life, actions, words, and way has led to moral and social turmoil. 
Jesus was not a psychologist, but any psychology misaligned with his life, his purpose, his ethics, the message in his death has collapsed into incoherence today. Jesus was not a politician, but every government that has ignored his principles, his purity and wisdom has ended in either tyranny or anarchy. Karl Barth, the prominent Swiss Reformed theologian, known for his significant contributions to Christian theology, was asked one day, what was the most important principle in Scripture? And he responded, Jesus loves me, this I know. Here's my question. I want the prayer partners to come, please. Here's my question. I have two questions for you this morning to close this message. If God is true, would you trust Him? Or ask differently, why have you stopped? If Jesus is real, my second question, if Jesus is real, would you follow him? Or for some of you, why have you stopped? See, let me ask a third question that I wasn't planning to ask, but maybe it will be helpful to make my point. If Christianity is true, would you become one? Would you become a Christian if Christianity were true? Some people would say no. But the bedrock, the bedrock of our faith is what is true. And I believe the evidence is very solid. In fact, I believe the existence of God outside of what can be examined in a laboratory or with other means of measuring that we have in the modern world. There is nothing outside of that realm of what we might call science that has more evidence of, of accuracy and truth than the existence of a supreme being that is described for us in Scripture. I want to invite you this morning, some of you, I want to invite some of you to come and be prayed for. And your reason for coming down is you are saying, I am going to put my trust in God. I'm going to put my trust in Jesus. Some of you need to be prayed for because you have one of those material, physical needs that I referred to earlier. And you need to know God's will. You need to have your faith supported. And you need to know that maybe God just might have a miracle for you in your situation. Would you come and be prayed for today?